before we jump into the message, I want to see how uh, savvy our church is on social media. So we're going to have a little quiz here. You know, we talk about followers on social media, places like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So I did a little research this week, and I found out which individuals are the most followed on those particular sites. So let's just have a little fun now. When it comes to Facebook, Facebook, who do you think in 2018 has the most followers, at least the best that can be counted? I'm going to give you some options here. One of them is Rihanna, the, the singer Rihanna. One of them is Vin Diesel who is the star of the Fast and the Furious franchise. One of them is Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, who is the famous soccer player. And the last is the Biebs, Justin Bieber. Okay? Of those people, who would you say is the most followed person on Facebook? If you think it's Rihanna, raise your hand. How about Vin Diesel, the actor? How about Cristiano Ronaldo? Anybody? And finally, Justin Bieber. Well, if you said Justin Bieber, you're wrong. <laughs> it is Ronaldo, who is worldwide uh, probably the most famous soccer player, uh, maybe of all time. How about Twitter? When it comes to tweets and retweets, would you say that uh, former President Barack Obama or Katy Perry, the pop singer, or Taylor Swift, also a singer, or Kim Kardashian, who would you say is the most followed person on Twitter? If you think it's the president, President Obama, raise your hand. How about Katy Perry? How many of you think it's Taylor Swift? And how many of you think it's Kim Kardashian? Yeah, if you said Kim Kardashian, you're wrong again. <laughs> it is Katy Perry, believe it or not. Yeah. And finally, when it comes to Instagram, something I know very little, if nothing, about, there are four options there. One of them is Beyonce. The second one is Kylie Jenner, which is Kim Kardashian's sister, who I heard yesterday on the radio makes twenty, uh, excuse me, thirty-six thousand dollars every two and a half hours. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know Dwayne The Rock uh, from uh, movie and wrestling fame. And finally, the singer Selena Gomez. So how many of you think Beyonce is the most followed person on Instagram? How about Kylie Jenner, Kim's sister? How about Dwayne The Rock Johnson? And finally, Selena Gomez. Well, if you said Selena Gomez, you would finally be right. <laughs> Interesting, is it? Not sure any of you raised your hand at all, but it's a very interesting thing about who we follow in this world today. And today we're continuing this series, Good News, from the Gospel of Mark by looking at the real primary mission Jesus had when he walked this earth. In Mark chapter 3, we see some interesting things begin to develop. Jesus is once again butting heads with the religious leaders after he heals a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And after that, they really pour on the heat by claiming that Jesus is actually possessed, that he's driving out demons because he's actually a servant of Satan himself. And this, of course, is the classic passage where Jesus tells them that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. In other words, 
why would Satan cast out Satan? And at the end of chapter 3, it's very interesting. We see Jesus' own family deciding that he may be a little bit off his rocker. So they show up at his house where he's teaching. And they're either there maybe to talk some sense into him or to take him away before he gets himself killed. They certainly have a problem with what he's saying. And Mark ends with Jesus asking the question, Who are my mother and brothers? And he answers it with this classic statement, Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sister. Whoever does God's will. It's very interesting. We see in Mark that he's kind of painting a picture of sides being chosen and loyalties being determined and alliances being formed. Everyone seems to be choosing a side which side they're going to be on when it comes to this man, Jesus. So it may not be by accident then that in the middle of chapter 3, Mark inserts an account of Jesus calling and then commissioning, appointing his disciples. We're going to read this today from chapter 3. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Borjarnes, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and finally Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Many people, when they read these kind of passages, they just kind of, you know, kind of gloss over them because they seem kind of mundane and meaningless. But there is a significance to this passage that we're going to talk about today. If you read the other gospel accounts of Jesus calling his disciples, many times they're kind of like more specific about where they were at and what they were doing. Uh, but what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, regardless of where it's recorded, I want you to know he's still doing that same thing today. Mark's gospel, really all the gospels, is the story of Jesus inviting people to make a decision regarding the good news of his kingdom. We're going to explore that invitation today. But to do it, I want us to help, hopefully help you understand why it was so significant in Jesus' day that he would call his disciples. Over the years, it has helped me, and I think maybe it'll help some of you who are really serious about following Christ, to look at Jesus from the world in which he lived. That, of course, was a Middle Eastern culture. And when you understand the culture he lived in, then you can understand the things that he did and the things that he said and why they were so incredibly radical in that day. For example, one of the things you have to remember about Jesus is that Jesus was not American. Jesus was not southern born and southern bred. Jesus was not a Republican, nor was he a Democrat. Jesus was not American at all. He was thoroughly Jewish. Furthermore, we learned that one of the reasons he was a magnet for controversy and opposition is because when he grew up, Jesus became a rabbi, a rabbi known as one with authority. A scholar by the name of Ray Vanderlaan 
has done a lot of research in this area, and he notes that in Jesus' day, it was a custom that if you were going to become a rabbi, you would have to memorize the entire Torah. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. And Ray said that there were actually certain rabbis, and these were very, very small in number, who became known as rabbis with authority. These rabbis had memorized the entire Old Testament. Again, if you know something about the New Testament, there are a number of times when Jesus is talked about as being a rabbi with authority. This means that when Jesus spoke, people listened. They didn't always agree with him. Sometimes they disagreed with him. But they listened because for his age, he was someone who had great authority. Now, up to this point in his life, Jesus is not really much different from any other Jewish rabbi, even rabbis with authority. But then you start reading the gospel accounts like we are in the book of Mark, and you realize Jesus actually is quite different, even radical when compared to other rabbis. And the secret here is understanding what was it about this man Jesus that made him so radical? I'm going to try to explain it by explaining how things worked in that day. The most respected, prestigious role, as I said, in the community would have been the spiritual leader, the rabbi, the person who would guide the congregation in the exploration of Scripture. It would be the highest dream of most young men to become a rabbi. And if you were the best of the best of the best... You would usually go to a rabbi, generally a rabbi with authority, a very powerful rabbi. And this is something interesting about the rabbis. Each of those people, those men, would have an interpretation of the Torah, their own interpretation. For example, there's a passage in Leviticus in the Old Testament that says basically, love your neighbor. Now, what does that mean? Well, one rabbi would say it means this, and they may list three or four things. And then another rabbi would say, well, I agree with you, but I want to give you three or four more things that love your neighbor means. And then another rabbi with authority might come along and say, well, yeah, I agree with those, but I disagree with you on number one and number two, and here's a couple more that you can consider. One of the things they would talk about is permitting and forbidding, and they would call it binding and loosing. Remember the passage where Jesus refers in the gospel, he says something like, whatever you bind on earth or whatever you loose on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven. That is kind of rabbi language. He's saying, I'm giving you authority to make decision about what is permissible and what's not. Now, this is kind of important. A rabbi's interpretation of the scriptures would be called his yoke. When you followed a rabbi, you would be placed yourself, you would place yourself under the yoke of a rabbi. Anybody remember what Jesus said about his yoke? Matthew 11 said his yoke was what? Easy and my burden is light. In other words, my yoke is never going to be about an endless list of rules. My yoke is going to be about freedom and about a relationship with God. Now this is where it gets interesting. Because if you were a student, if you were kind of the best of the best of the best... When you went through the education process, eventually you would go to a powerful, well-known rabbi whose yoke you wanted to take on yourself. And you would say to that rabbi, Rabbi, I really want to become your Talmud, your disciple. 
I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. I want to take your yoke on me. I want you to teach me your yoke. I want you to teach me how to live out the scriptures. Now, when we start looking at Jesus' interpretation, things get radical really quick. (laughs) Because Jesus didn't teach like any other rabbi. When Jesus said his yoke was easy or light, he wasn't saying it was easy. He wasn't saying it was a piece of cake. He was saying that it would lead to life and joy and freedom that no other way of living would lead to. And boy, did that cause problems. You know, it would have been a lot neater, I really believe, if Jesus had just started a religion like most of us want. If we could just participate in a religion and things could be very neat and we could just have a list of rules and follow the rules all the time, or if Jesus had just walked around with a clipboard and say, can I sign you up? But Jesus didn't do that. Part of what being a rabbi meant to him is that he insisted that people's lives would change. And as we're going to see now and in the future weeks at looking at Mark's gospel, people in Jesus' day responded to him like he was sour candy. How many of you know what warheads are? I told you this before. When you think about Jesus, one of the things you need to picture in your mind is Warhead's candy. Now, if you don't know what they are, kids love Warhead candy. And when you put a Warhead candy in your mouth, whether it's lemon or grape or whatever flavor it may be, two things happen at the same time. On the one hand, you're like, whoo, that is so, so sour. Your eyes are watering and your glands kick in and there's just water everywhere. But, but you feel alive. (laughs) It wakes you up, right? But then there's another side of you that goes, whoa, you need to spit this out. Right? So two things going on at the same time. That's exactly the way it was with Jesus as a rabbi. People either wanted to spit him out. Or they would be like, wow, I've never felt so alive. And because the rabbi wants to perpetuate his yoke, he realizes, listen, I've only got so many years. And I want my yoke to be heard by as many people as possible. So the rabbi is looking for disciples in that day who would be capable of carrying his yoke. Does that make sense? The rabbi's fundamental question is, Does this student have what it takes? Can this student be like me? Does this student have what it takes to do what I do? And if the rabbi decides that this young guy, this kid can do it, he can actually be like me, then this rabbi would say two of the most powerful, radical words that they could ever hear in that culture. And this is it. The most radical thing that Jesus ever said On this earth, in my opinion, it applies to disciples then and it applies to disciples now. It's when he would look at someone and he would simply say, Lek Akara, come follow me. To be a student and to hear a rabbi say this, to say that he had chosen you to perpetuate his yoke was huge. Young men, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, they would leave their family, oftentimes their brothers and their sisters and the synagogue and their school, maybe even their friends, 
Sometimes they would leave everything and they would just devote themselves to being like their rabbi. And they would literally follow the rabbi everywhere. They would do everything the rabbi would do. For example, if he walks along and picks up a blade of grass, he put it in his mouth. The student would walk along, pick up a blade of grass, and put it in his mouth. You would want to walk like your rabbi, talk like your rabbi, memorize like your rabbi, study like your rabbi. And some of these rabbis were really quirky. Like some of them had really weird mannerisms and they would do amazing things with like physical objects, like object lessons with stuff. But the rabbi was committed to the student and the student was committed to the rabbi. In fact, there's a saying that some of you I'm sure have heard and read. It's been passed down through the years in the Jewish community. It simply says this. The saying is, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you be so committed to your rabbi, may you follow with such devotion that as you're walking behind your rabbi, may you walk so closely that you get a face full of dust. Jesus would say to people, follow me. This is kind of what is happening in Mark 3. Jesus calls disciples and commissions them and appoints them. We see it in other parts of the Gospels. And I want to tell you why this is so radical and why it's so important for us in our day in 2018. A good part of my life, I thought it was me who invited Jesus into my heart. And while that is true on one level, the truth is this invitation has been on the table long before I ever heard a word. The invitation for me and the invitation for you is on the table even right now. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter. Your time is not over. It is not done. It doesn't even matter what you've done in your life up to this point. This is a very important thing for you to hear today. If you're like me, maybe you're not, but if you're like me, I thought all my life growing up that if I believed in God... If I believed in Jesus, if I thought he was who he said he was, if he really was the Son of God, if he really did come and die on a cross and then was raised from the grave, that that would do it. And don't get me wrong, that's a big step. It's really important. But if that is the only step that happens in our life, we are missing something huge. If our understanding of Jesus really is wrapped up in what we believe, there's something missing, friends. Because here's what I found in my life. There is this grand canyon-sized gap between believing in God and believing in Jesus and actually following Him. Because believing and following are two very, very different things. Did you know the Bible tells us that even the demons believe in God, but they don't follow him? It's important to understand this about Jesus and about his culture. Because in his day, there was no belief without action. There was no belief without response and without the risk of trust. See, those two things went in hand in hand. It's only in our Western civilization, our Americanized version of Christianity, that we've somehow been able to believe something without having to actually give ourselves over to it. This is why Jesus in the Gospels, four times more than he said, believe in me, he would say, follow me. 
Four times as much. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Jesus never really said, let's bow our head and say the sinner's prayer and that's all you need. He never really said, let's go to church or synagogue and that's all you need. He never really said, if you follow me, life's going to be great and wonderful and you're never going to have any problems. The only thing he really promised was, listen, wherever I call you, I'll go there with you. If you'll follow me, I'll lead you somewhere. I think this is one of the reasons he got such different responses from people. I think it's one of the reasons some people walked away and hung their head and just were so disappointed. And I think it's another reason why some people said, this is the greatest opportunity of my life. Now, here's the tough part, and this is tough to hear. In those days when your rabbi questioned you and said, can you be like me? There was always the chance that the rabbi would come back and say, well... You do really know the Torah. You obviously know the scriptures. You have a heart for God. But I just don't think you have what it takes. There was always a chance that a rabbi would let you progress and progress. And then you would reach that point where the rabbi would say, well, you're just not going to make it to Harvard. (laughs) You just don't have Yale material in you. And if the rabbi came to that conclusion, then in a very gentle and loving way, Uh, they would say, listen, I know you love God. I know you love the scriptures. I know you live an obedient life, but listen, you're not going to be a disciple of mine. What I want you to do is go home and make babies, and maybe they'll be a disciple. Or they might say, go home and ply your trade, which meant go home, learn the family business. Now, there were some rabbis, obviously, who were powerful, who did work as well. But generally, if the rabbi didn't think you had what it takes, he would say, go ply your trade. Go apprentice under your father. Learn whatever it is the family trade is. Find a friend in the village. You know, take after them. Now, earlier, we read the names of the 12 disciples Jesus called and commissioned. But after understanding now this whole thing of following a rabbi... I want to go and look at a couple of the gospel accounts in the New Testament that refer to the specific calling of certain disciples to see if understanding all this helps us now see our relationship with Jesus a little differently. We're going to flip over to Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 4, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. There it is. Jesus said, And I will make you fishers of men. Now, this is kind of interesting. A lot of people have been bewildered by this last verse. It says, At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, if you're like me and Robbie and you grew up in a church environment, you probably have heard a few drop-your-net sermons over the years. They're usually very motivational, and they challenge you to drop your net, whatever lifestyle, whatever issue. Sometimes they even tell you to quit your job. Whatever's keeping you from following Jesus passionately, it's time to let it go. Drop your net. One author talks about this like, it's like Jesus comes down the beach where they're fishing and he says, come follow me. And the disciples like zombies in a trance just kind of follow him out of the boat. 
The question is, why do they follow him immediately? Now, this is maybe the most important thing of the day. Why? Because a rabbi with authority believes they can do it. What could be better in the whole world than for the rabbi with authority to come and say to you, hey, follow me, drop your nets, let's go. Notice the next section in Matthew. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father mending their nets. Now, we kind of skim over that, but right now you should be thinking what's happening here, okay? Then it says, and Jesus called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. And we never get this in the Bible, but I have a feeling the next verse is like Zebedee files for chapter 11. Okay? <laughs> See, what we're talking about here from his culture is we can read into this and we understand what's going on. Zebedee goes home that night and says, hey, babe, the boys aren't coming home. What do you mean? The, the boys aren't going to be with me anymore. What do you mean? The rabbi, you know the radical one? The one everybody's talking about? The one that's turning up the apple cart? He thinks our boys can do it. What? Yeah. He called our boys, our boys, James and John. The ones that can barely tie their sandals. Yeah. They're going to be studying with this local rabbi, this one that's rocking everybody's world. I can see Zebedee going to work the next day. Where are your boys? Uh, well, you know, a rabbi called them. Ah, get out of here, Zebedee. Come on. When a rabbi was preaching a new yoke, many of them would preach the yoke of somebody else. For example, they would come along and they would say, I preach the rope, uh, yoke of Rabbi Shimon or the yoke of Simon Ben or whoever. But every once in a while, a rabbi would come along with a new yoke, which again would be a rabbi with authority. And usually when they did that, guess what they would say? They would say stuff like this. See if this sounds familiar. You have heard it said, but I tell you, does that sound like somebody? You have heard it said, but I tell you. This is why you find references in the Bible where people would say, this guy doesn't teach like our teachers of the law. For this reason, people would hike for miles to hear Jesus. A new yoke? A new yoke is being taught? Somebody's interpreting the text in a new way? They would hike for days. They would sit on a hillside listening until they realized, I haven't eaten a thing. They would chase a rabbi around the lake to the other side when he's in the boat just so they could meet him on the other side. They would tear the roof off a house just to hear a yoke. They would interrupt a dinner party to fall at the feet of the rabbi. They would climb a tree just to get a better seat and to hear this rabbi teach. And they would certainly drop their nets if they were a fisherman. Now here's the point, and this is kind of key. There are two ways that this kind of like applies to us, this follow me thing. The first one I'll put in the form of a question. Why would anyone not want to follow this amazing rabbi? Why would anybody walk away from that opportunity? Well, the answer may surprise you. 
And to help us see it, I want us to look at this last interaction between Jesus and his disciples. This is actually way over in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. It's a story that you're probably familiar with where Jesus walks on the water. It says, During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Now let me tell you why they were terrified. Because in Jesus' day, they viewed fresh water, um, not, not running water or drinking water, but fresh water, like a still body of water, a deep body of water. They viewed that as the abyss. Because back in Genesis, the story was that God descended down into the chaos and they saw water as chaos. It was a place of evil. That's why when Jesus cast demons out of a man and sends them into a group of pigs, remember where the pigs ended up? They end up in the water. And it kind of helps explain then why are the disciples so scared on the lake? They're terrified. Well, one of the reasons is it's the abyss. And suddenly they look up and they see someone walking toward them and they say, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now listen to this next part and see if you can catch this. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now what is Peter doing here? He's a disciple. What is his rabbi doing? His rabbi is walking on the water. If you're a disciple, what do you want to do? Walk on the water. So the disciple gets out on the boat and follows his rabbi. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, Jesus said, why did you doubt? Now, pastor and author Rob Bell makes a very keen observation here. He says, I've always been under the impression and I had always been taught that when Jesus says, you of little faith, what Jesus is saying is, Peter, come on. Where's your faith in me? You got to have more faith in me. But he said, here's my question. Is Jesus the one sinking? Who does Peter really lose faith in? For example, is Jesus having any trouble walking on the water? No. So when Jesus says, you of little faith, this is a rabbi speaking to his disciple Peter who loses faith that he can actually do it. That's why Jesus is really upset here. Peter loses faith, I would suggest, in himself. You see, a rabbi and his student, they were bound together with one thought, and that is that the rabbi thought his student could do it. You can do it. When Peter sings, Jesus says, you have little faith. It isn't Jesus having the problem walking on water. And maybe Jesus is trying to teach Peter that he called him, and he called him because he really believes that Peter can actually be like him. Maybe Jesus is trying to teach Peter that he believes he can actually hurt, uh, uh, follow him and have faith in him and actually do it. I've heard so many teachings about this. A lot of them are really good teachings on how I have to have faith in God and I have to have faith in Jesus. But here's what I think some of you need to own today. Maybe Jesus has faith in you. 
Maybe Jesus believes that you can actually be a disciple and you can actually follow him every single day of your life. And to me, this has very profound implications in the world that we live in. So I'll end it with this. In the closing part of another gospel, the gospel of John, Jesus is kind of preparing his disciples for his death, and he says these powerful words to them. He says, you do not choose me. You did not choose me. I chose you. Now, people read that, and they just kind of think, that's kind of cool the way he said that, you know? No, it's not cool. It's exactly right. What he's saying here is, you didn't come to me and say, please, 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 can I be your Talmud? Can I be your disciple? He said, I came to you, and I said, I pick you. I think these were the most powerful words that any of his disciples ever heard. And he says, now listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to come back from the grave. I'm going to ascend to heaven. And listen, I'm going to leave you here to perpetuate my yoke. And when you find yourself in tough situations and you find yourself facing insurmountable odds and when you are ridiculed and persecuted and made fun of, when you even face death yourself one day, just remember that you didn't choose me, I chose you. I believe you can be like me. And 2,000 years later, this dust-covered rabbi makes the same statement to every single person in this world, including you. You did not choose him. He chose you. And if you are willing to drop your net, whatever that may look like, he wants you to follow him. There are only two rabbis that we know of in Jewish history that ever went and called disciples. A rabbi named Hillel who lived nearly 50 years before Jesus. He was known as saying God can make a disciple out of anybody. And then there's Jesus. Every other one of them had students come to them, but not so with Jesus. Our rabbi went out looking for the broken, the abused, the hurting, those who had been rejected by the religious establishment, those that didn't think they could cut it or make it, those who had made mistakes. And he says to all of them, come follow me. And so a group of fishermen leave their nets and the tax collector leaves his crooked ambition and a political zealot leaves his agenda and a social outcast leaves her past and one by one, day by day, they all leave something to follow him. The doubter, the schemer, the cheater, the widow, the warrior, the beggar. And I don't know about you. I don't know if you're a plumber, a nurse. I don't know if you're trapped in eternal office space. I don't know what it is. But wherever you find yourself today, I want you to hear these words. Lek Akarat, come follow me. He believes you can do it. And for that reason, he says in Mark 3, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. They are my disciples. And Father, we bow our heads and we pray. We thank you, first of all, that um, we didn't choose you, you chose us. That you look at us every day and you whisper to us, you can do it. You can be light in this world, you can be salt of the earth, you can be hope to the hurting, 
You can be help to the helpless. You can be the joy that is missing from this world. You can do it. So today, wherever we feel inadequate, insecure, wherever we feel like we are less than, may we take heart in the story of Mark chapter 3. May we take heart in the stories of Andrew and Peter being called. May we take heart in the stories of John and James of being called and being chosen and realize that a lot may have changed in 2,000 years, but one thing is not. You are still our rabbi. You are still our savior. You are still our Messiah. And for that, we smile and say thank you. I pray now in Jesus' name you go with us even to the very end of this age. Amen.